Well, brothers and sisters, may the Lord give you his peace. I hope everybody had a good night's sleep and a nice breakfast this morning. We've got a long day today, so uh, we want to get started, you know, on a good, good step. As the Chinese proverb said, the journey of 10,000 miles begins with the first step, so we want to take a good first step. You'll notice I cannot kneel. I can genuflect, but I cannot kneel. I have a very bad knee, and so um, trying to keep it from getting worse, okay? And the doctor told me, he said, as long as you can, you don't need the operation, as long as you can stand it, you know, then he said, if it gets to a point where you can't stand it anymore, then come for an operation. So that's why I apologize. I, I have to stand sometimes during the benediction and other times. But uh, today we, we want to finish up something we did last night on the life of St. Therese, and that was we came to where her writings all the writings uh, of St. Therese were done usually under obedience to either her spiritual director or her superiors and so on. Okay, we talked about the book of Foundation, which she wrote to describe when she established her 17 convents of the Reform, of the Discalced Reform of the Carmelites. Okay, uh, she wrote her life, the book that's called Her Life, um, uh, is a, uh, her autobiography. It's known for an image, um, especially what we call the image of the four waters, in which she describes a life of prayer is likened to four ways that you can water the garden. Um, and each way, as you go through the, the spiritual journey, each way becomes, uh, involves less and less effort on our part and more and more the work of the Holy Spirit. She compared it in the beginning from trying to water a garden with, from a deep well. You got to drop the bucket down, you know, turn the, the turn and get that bucket up filled and carry it and, to, and water a few plants and you got to start all over again. She said if you, if you make a little further progress, it's like a water wheel. You know, you step on that water wheel and a lot more water comes out with a, a lot less effort. She said if you get to further on in the spiritual life, and this is like the fourth, fifth mansion, uh, you, you uh, come to the pond, which is there's an irrigation pond, you know, on the, the garden, and all you have to do is open the gate, and the water will flow through the different canals through the, throughout the garden and water the garden that way. And she said if you get to the sixth and seventh mansion, that's like the rain. You don't have to do anything. The Holy Spirit does it all, okay? So that was the image that she gave us in the watering the garden, that's in her life. Uh, again, she uh, she wrote it again to manifest her spiritual, you know, her state of soul to her spiritual director. Another work that she wrote later on was the Way of Perfection, and this was written for her nuns uh, on how to live, you know, the virtues of a reformed or dis uh, discalced Carmelite community. It's meant for contemplatives. And in this book, uh, what St. Therese does, uh, Teresa does, is um, she, uh, she elaborates more on the practice of prayer and uh, teaches her nuns the virtues that they should be concerned with. She'll also use the Our Father as a, uh, a, a prayer for teaching uh, prayer in greater depth, okay? This is her most important ascetical work. In other words, when she talks about the virtues of Christian life that should be practiced. And finally, her masterpiece was the interior castle, okay, in which she describes a soul spiritually moving in a journey within through seven different stages, 
or ways, uh, seven stages, I'm sorry, way, uh, mansions, through, passing through those seven mansions to find Christ in the center of the soul. Okay, so that kind of uh, was a conclusion to her work. She wrote that very shortly before the end of her life. And uh, she did so uh, when she was suffering terrible headaches and uh, great weakness. Uh, she was under a lot of pressure. The, there was fears that new superiors came into the Carmelites a new apostolic delegate, Nuncio, was there in Spain, and uh, I guess they looked a little uh, suspiciously at this reform, and so she always feared they were going to suppress the reform. Uh, at the same time, uh, Father Gratian, whom I mentioned, was her confessor and friend, they, they began to write pamphlets against him, you know, scandalous things, which were not true. And of course, being that St. Therese knew him, it was very close to him, she became implicated in, you know, suspicion fell on her as well. So she put up with an awful lot, but she produced a masterpiece, you know, in that writing. Sometimes we do the best when we feel least capable of doing it. You know, it's actually true. Jesus had probably his greatest success in terms of conversions of people when he was thirsty at the well there in Samaria. Remember that he was he wanted to take a rest, and he was thirsty. And through that woman that he converted, he converted the entire village. So sometimes if you feel like, I've got nothing to give, I can't do anything, I won't accomplish anything, just give it to the Lord and see what he will do with it, okay? It's amazing, uh, but sometimes the, most, the moments that seem the least promising for us can produce the greatest effects. Why? Because it's God's work and not ours, okay? A couple of things I want to mention about uh, the interior castle. Um, she said about prayer, she said, there's no need for wings to, if you want to find God, you don't have to have the wings of an eagle to soar off in the sky and try to find God out there. She said, all you need is a quiet little place where you can be alone with God who dwells within you. See, the indwelling, what we call the divine indwelling in the soul, was extremely important for St. Teresa. You know, and even if you're familiar with the uh, revelations of Our Lady of America to, you know, to a, a nun by the name of Sister Mildred New Zeal, we're trying to get that approved because it brings great promises for the church in America, okay? And it focuses around this indwelling that God dwells within us. You know, that's our dignity. We carry God within us, huh? And uh, I remember the story, one of my favorite stories in the Fathers of the Church was a man named Origen who was baptized as an infant. He was one of the early fathers around third century. Most of the fathers before that were adults when they, when they converted. But he was baptized as an infant. And I'll never forget the story. When he went home, you know, as they put him in a crib and his father went over to the crib and kissed him on the chest. And the people saw that and they said, well, why did you do that? He said, well... My little son, he was just baptized. He is a living temple of the, whole, of the Blessed Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit live in him. And that's what being in the state of grace. The state of grace doesn't mean, well, I'm not in California. I'm not in New Jersey, New York. Not those states don't matter. <laughs> the only state that matters is the state of grace, okay? Because that means you have God's life within you. And uh, in, you remember the parable about the wedding feast, and the guy came in, he didn't have the wedding garment on? And they, they had to throw him out. You might feel sorry for the poor guy. Maybe he was poor. He couldn't afford a wedding garment. 
No, no. You got the wedding garment at the door. The one who invited you gave you a wedding garment. So when the, when the, the one who was giving the party said, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? The man was silent. He couldn't give an answer. He didn't accept it. In other words, Jesus was saying the only people excluded from the kingdom are those who refuse to accept the conditions to enter the kingdom. See, So the condition you need is to have grace within you. If you die in the state of grace, you're assured of going to heaven. Okay, If you don't, Father Benedict used to say, boop, boop, you know, <laughs> I, can't, I can't speak for what's going to happen for the person that doesn't have the state of grace, you know, that living presence of God in them. Okay, a second thing that was very important for St. Teresa is that she, she not only believed that God dwelt within her, okay, this was very important, this indwelling of God, but she said that there was also the possibility of growth and spirituality, okay? Uh, see, many spiritual writers at the time said you could only grow through what were the first three stages of, of uh, the spiritual life. Anything beyond that, which was the beginning of contemplative or mystical prayer, that's only given to extraordinary people. That's not for everybody. St. Teresa said, no, everybody's called to that. Everybody's called to the seventh mansion. Now, whether everybody's going to make it, that's another story. But everybody is called to that. She said that is the natural conclusion of the spiritual journey, to get to the seventh mansion. Okay, obviously it takes great, great generosity and faithfulness to God to, you know, to achieve that, uh, humility and so on. But um, everyone is called to the seventh mansion. She didn't believe those who said, no, you're only called to the third mansion. Beyond that is extraordinary people. And isn't that what the Council of Vatican Council told us? Every person by their baptism is called to the fullness of charity. If you reach the fullness of charity, you will reach the seventh mansion. Yesterday, we celebrated the feast of one of the holiest men that ever lived. That's what Pius John Paul said of St. Maximilian Kolbe. And what did he do? He gave his life there in the concentration camp for a man who was condemned to death, remember? He told the Nazi commandant, I give my life for that man, because that man was condemned to die. And uh, the commandant said, we've never seen anything like this in this place before. And he died in the place of that man. And didn't Jesus say, no greater love can you have than that you lay down your life for your friend? And that's exactly what St. Maximilian Kolbe did. You know, uh, he was a holy man. So if you reach the fullness of grace, you know, uh, you, will, you will reach the seventh mansion, okay? Um, so everyone can grow to that. And finally, um, the... There is a growth that takes place, uh, which she, she described, St. Teresa described, through the mansion. So let's get ready to go into that now. I want to begin by making a statement that St. Teresa said, we can receive one or two or all three special graces or graces that God can give. Okay? This is what she means by this. She said, <clears throat> in regard to our spiritual experiences, first of all, there is the grace to experience spiritual things. Now, there are a lot of people who experience God working in their life, but do not know it. They can't detect it. They don't know it's him. Okay? For example, you go through dryness, you know, in your prayer life. You may say, well, that's, uh, you know, I'm, I, 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 why do I have to go through this? I, I'd love to have consolation. Maybe it's God working in your soul at that moment to detach you from, you know, depending on consolation. 
trusting more in him, being more humble. So people do experience spiritual things, but don't know what they are. Don't even realize they're going through it. The second grace, she said, people obtain would be the grace to know what they are experiencing. Okay, so these are people who are aware of what God is doing in their spiritual life. So that's a grace beyond just experiencing these things. And the third grace, she said, is the ability to explain to other people the experiences of the spiritual life that one one has. Okay, obviously, St. Teresa of Avila had all three of those, right? She experienced great things, the spiritual life. She knew what was happening. She could interpret it. And finally, she could explain it to other people. So St. Teresa had all three of those graces. And, uh, and you know, those um, books that I mentioned she wrote, the teaching she gave, much of that was simply explaining what she was going through. See, when she, when she had written the book on, called the, the one we said was the, uh, the Way of Perfection, her spiritual director realized that even beyond that, she had experienced new things. So he asked her to write this book to bring up to date what God was doing in her soul. And that's why the interior castle was written, okay, so that she could explain more fully, uh, you know, what God was doing in her. And, and we've learned so much. As I said to you yesterday, she's the master of this. By the way, she is the doctor of prayer. One of the Carmelites, I was having breakfast with him, and he said that was her title, the doctor of prayer. So she taught us an awful lot through her own beautiful spiritual experience, okay? Now, second point I want to make is that the spiritual life, I often compare it, uh, liken it to a ladder. Take a ladder that you lean against the wall. It has two legs, right? and has the different rungs of the ladder, all right? Now, it's important to have two things, like these two legs of the ladder. You take one leg away, the whole thing's going to fall down. Hmm? Um, What are the two legs of the spiritual life? There's prayer and there's virtue, okay? A lot of people think, well, as long as I grow in prayer, that's enough. No, without virtue, you're not growing. You can't be in the sixth mansion in prayer and I'm in the first mansion of virtue. I hate people or, I, you know, I can't forgive somebody. I want to, you know, wish him, uh, you know, that he, he get, uh, you know, uh, I remember somebody used to say, may you get four flats. Hmm? Uh, <laughs> you know, if you're wishing all kind of evil things on people, you're certainly not growing in virtue. Charity, huh? Charity is the expression. Uh, love of God and love of neighbor. Hmm? And so uh, St. John says, the one who loves God must also love their neighbor. Hmm? So that's very important. So you have to grow in virtue as you grow in prayer and vice versa. In fact, the more you're growing in virtue, it, it makes the way of prayer easier for you because it will eliminate the obstacles against charity. Hmm? And those are the things that hold us back. Self-love, selfishness, anger, impatience. Uh, criticalness, pride, vanity, all of those things are the things that hold us back. So we have to work both on our prayer life, but at the same time, our virtues, our Christian virtues, to practice them so that we can grow. You will be, you, as you grow in the practice of Christian virtue, as you grow in doing God's will more faithfully, you are making progress. 
Okay? Why? You can't make progress in the virtues without something being correct about your prayer. Hmm? And, um, and so the practice of prayer, we'll see, goes through different stages as you go through these different mansions. Your prayer changes somewhat. Okay? Um, now, in the, in, the, there was, in the beginning, the first three mansions, which uh, if you're familiar with the traditional language in the spiritual life, they used to call the spiritual life, they used to break it into three segments, three stages. The first stage was called the purgative way, purgative stage. Have you ever heard of that? Have you heard of that, that expression, the purgative way? It's basically someone coming off conversion who's still very attached to the world and the flesh and the devil and has to give that up, has to be purified of that. See, that's where virtue comes in. And the prayer is necessary to practice the virtue. You have to ask God for the grace, the strength you need to be faithful to him, to practice the virtues and break away from the hold that the world and the flesh and the devil have uh, on us in a distorted way. Hmm? Um, on the other hand, if you, the second stage is called the illuminative way from light, the whole idea of illumination, light. Why? Because once you reach that, that's the fourth and fifth mansions, okay? Once you reach those mansions, the Holy Spirit begins to operate in your soul in a profound way, okay? He begins to illumine you with the light of understanding. See, uh, there are the, what we call the seven sanctifying gifts of the Holy Spirit. Remember what they are? There is, the first one is fear of the Lord. Now, fear of the Lord is very important because that's the first gift of the Spirit that begins to operate. Fear of the Lord is not, not the fear of God punishing me. That's called servile fear, the fear of a slave being punished by the master. That's not fear of the Lord. Unfortunately, they use the same word fear, but it's a very different thing. Fear of the Lord is a feeling of gratitude that comes, begins to grow in the person as they reach about the third mansion, okay? And what are they grateful for? Because God is all good and he's worthy of all my love. He's patient with me, he's forgiving. He's giving me all my blessings, my family, my friends, you know, maybe my home and so on. All the blessings I have in life that I could easily take for granted, but they are gifts of God, see? And then I realize God is so merciful with me Every time I offend him, I go back and he forgives me. So I am grateful. And that gratitude begins, this is the fear of the Lord. The fear is not what God is going to do to me. He's going to punish me. That's servile fear. Fear of the Lord is, I love him. I don't want to offend him. I don't want to let him down. It's like a little child. I don't want to disappoint my parents. I want to do my best because I want my parents to be proud of me. I want them to love me. And so fear of the Lord is this beginning of a gratitude, okay, where you begin to want to um, love God because he is all good and deserving of all my love. Have you ever heard those words before in the act of contrition? Remember, I dread the loss of heaven. Well, that means I don't want to lose his taking care of me. Well, the pains of hell, that's servile fear. But most of all, because they offend you, my sins offend you, my God, who are all good and deserving of all my love. That's the beginning of the fear of the Lord. And you need that to grow. Okay? And once that starts, that's why Scripture says the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. 
It's the first of the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit begins to operate in our soul. The second gift is piety, where we begin to look upon God as a loving father. Okay? When you, the, the little flower, right? When she, she had that great love, the, she called it spiritual childhood. She had a great image of her father, her earthly father who took care of her. And so she had a great image of God the Father. And that's what we need. We need to have a loving, to look upon God our Father in heaven as a loving Father who cares for us, who created us, who has destined us to come to heaven. Okay? And so we should trust him. Uh, I was reading, uh, you're familiar with, um, uh, what is his name? He's, uh, he's a great spiritual writer, um, Jacques, uh, uh, Jacques Philippe. He has some great stuff on, on childhood, okay, spiritual childhood and trust. He said the, 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 center, the central point of spiritual childhood is trust. And you know, you need to have trust if you want to get close to God, to trust him. He loves you. He wants you in heaven. As the little flower said, she had an argument with one of the nuns that she lived with. She, and this nun was affected by Jansenism. You know, we're so corrupt and, you know, everybody's got to go to purgatory. And St. Teresa said, no, you don't. She, she said, Jesus doesn't want you to go to purgatory. He doesn't want you to suffer. So if you try to do God's will every day and you're doing the best you can, you can avoid going to purgatory. No, no, no. The nun says, you can't do that. You've got to go to purgatory. Everybody's got to go to purgatory. Well, that nun died. And about three months later, she appeared to St. Teresa in a dream. She said, I should have listened to you. <laughs> See, because she said Jesus doesn't want us to suffer. He wants us to love him. So piety makes you look upon God as a loving father. You need that grace. So many of us have a lot of hurts from our mothers and fathers, you know. You look back. Father Benedict Rochelle used to say, none of us were raised in a holy family. We didn't have Mary and Joseph as our parents. He says, and we got a lot of chips in the furniture to show for that, huh? Right? Okay, but we still have to love and trust our Heavenly Father with great confidence, okay? So that's piety. Then there's the gift of fortitude, which gives us strength to accomplish the things God calls us to do. Those three gifts help your will to be stronger. There are four gifts that help your mind. The highest gift of all is wisdom. Wisdom is a, a, um, a real taste for the things of God. A person is wise when they love the things of God. Okay? When that gift perf is perfect, your love will be perfect. So wisdom helps to perfect the gift of love. Then there's the gift of understanding, which helps you get deeper insights into the different things of the spiritual life. The, the word understanding in Latin is made up of two words, intellectum, intellectum, which means from the Latin word, two Latin words, inter legere. Legere is the verb to read, and inter means between. You know the expression to read between the lines, which means you go deeper than what's on the surface. That's what the gift of understanding does. It helps you go deeper into the mysteries of God, his love, you know, the understanding of the Eucharist. We grow in these things. And you need the gift of understanding if you want to pray well. Then there's the gift of knowledge, which is to look at the world around us and see it in the way God intended us to use the world. Yeah. 
You know, uh, a lot of uh, beginners in the spiritual life learn about God through nature. They see a beautiful sunrise or a beautiful sunset, hmm? and it's like God speaking to them. This is the beauty of God. Von Balthasar, a great theologian, said God speaks to us through three things, through his truth, through his goodness, and through his beauty. And so God will speak to us in those three ways, and we'll begin to hear him. We begin to see him, all right? And we begin to appreciate his presence in our life. Okay? Uh, so that's the gift of knowledge. And finally, the gift of counsel, which helps us to make wise decisions that will help us more surely to get to heaven, to choose wisely the things we must do. So the Holy Spirit begins in about the third beginning, especially in the fourth mansion, to use those gifts very, very strongly in your life. And that's how you progress in virtue. See, in the first three stages, we feel like we're doing all the work by ourselves. Once you hit that fourth stage and the Holy Spirit becomes more active in your life, it's like putting, like take a car. Imagine putting two jet engines, one on each side of your car. You start, you take off. You're going to go down that block in no time, right? Huh? Down that street. And that's what the gifts do. They, they strengthen us in the practice of virtue. Hmm? And we need to come to that. But let me, let me go through this here. So the purgative way, let me go back to that, uh, includes our cure, conversion, purification from self-love. We begin to love God. But the people in that first stage are beginners. They're, they're like children in the spiritual life. Hmm? Okay, the first three mansions of St. Teresa make up that purgative way. Um, St. Teresa says we do spend a good deal of our time of our lives in those first three mansions. A lot depends on your generosity, on your faithfulness. And you remember in her life yesterday, she had to make up her mind she was going to change her life. Remember when she was, all those distractions and worldliness that she fell into, remember? And she knelt near this, the statue of Saint, or the picture of Saint uh, Mary Magdalene, the penitent, and she said, I won't get off my, my knees until Jesus gives me the grace to change my life. See, you need to be determined if you want to become holy, okay? You've got to make up your mind to do that. All right. Um, the second stage is that illuminative stage, okay, where we're conscious of the Holy Spirit living and working in us, okay? The practice of the virtues is assisted by those seven sanctifying gifts I mentioned to you, okay? A greater purification from the world. And you know what? You advance much more rapidly. Why? Because the world holds, holds you down far less. You're breaking away from it. See, there's a beautiful saying, I think it was uh, St. Elizabeth Ann Seton, who can hold back the soul that God sets free? Remember, we were made for God. God is like a huge magnet. We're like a little piece of metal. And God wants to draw us to himself. But you know what the problem is? We put all kinds of things in front of that so that the, the magnet, the, the, the force of the magnet drawing us is diminished by all these things that are holding us back. We don't feel the full pull of God. You know when you will feel it? Once you die, your soul, once your soul is set free from your body, you're going to feel an enormous desire for God. And so if you're in that state of grace, grace, you're ready to go. 
may have to stop in purgatory for a while, though, if you haven't gotten fully purified. But if you are not in the state of grace, that will be the greatest torture for all eternity in your life. That's the greatest suffering of a soul in hell. They feel the desire for God now, but they can't go to him. They have excluded him. They have rejected God. Remember, if you read the diary of St. Faustina, she says Jesus calls each soul three times. He said, and if even you make the slightest turn to God, he will draw you. But if you refuse it, he will leave you in that state forever. And that will be, you will feel this desire for God, but you can't go to him. You've cut yourself off. That's the terrible thing of sin, mortal sin. Okay? Uh, and that's the greatest suffering in hell, that they can no longer love God. And yet they're going to feel this like, enormous, enormous hunger, but it can never be satisfied. Okay? So that's why St. Augustine, you know, he said, God, you made our hearts for yourself. And they are ever restless until they rest in you. So it's important that we grow. Now, in the unitive way, if you get that far, you're doing pretty good, okay, you're deeply joined to Christ. St. Teresa describes it in terms of a betrothal between God and the soul, a marriage, this deep union with God. Huh? You become almost one with him. She said it's like a, a log on fire. You can hardly tell the difference between the log and the fire anymore. The fire is so consuming the log. Huh? And so we will be consumed with God. There's great joy, but in, that, in those, uh, that unitive way, there will also be some tr great trials, all right? Remember, Jesus in the gospel said this, anyone who wishes to become my disciple must do three things, deny himself, take up his cross every day, and follow me. You know, if you take each one of those, those are the three stages I've just described. Deny yourself is the purgative way to give up the world, to de become detached from these things that keep holding me back. Remember, St. Teresa said she wanted to convert, but she said she kept falling back because she kept those attachments to the parlor and the, you know, all the people. She was neglecting her prayer life. She was neglecting her duty to be a contemplative nun. Um, so, so we must deny ourselves. Take up our cross each day. That's the practice of virtue. Be faithful. Do live the way God wants you to live. And finally, to follow him, because in the unitive way, you know, you will, you will be following Jesus more closely, okay? Now, there's two things I wanted to touch on before we get into this, the mansions and the, the, the uh, whatnot. First of all, you have to realize, remember I said there's grace, there's, there's lo love, virtue, and prayer that have to grow, okay? Let's take a look at the changes, and especially with love, okay? Love is the motivation that we need to have. You love God to the degree, you know, you, you'll be close to God to the degree you love him, you know, and love your neighbor. Remember when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? They were only looking for one. He said, well, to love the Lord your God with all your mind, your heart, your soul, and your strength. And the second, he said, is like it. The second follows from it. Shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. On these two commandments, the whole law of God is based. Okay? So that's what we must live. This, this is the fundamental call we have to love God with all our heart, to love our neighbor and ourselves for the sake of God. Okay? Now, St. Bernard says love goes through four stages. Okay? This is the simplest explanation I have ever found on these four stages of love. 
The first stage of love, he calls it carnal love, okay? This is the love of a person who's not converted, a person living a sinful life. You know, me, myself, and I are my main friends, okay? And, um, and how did he describe this carnal love? I love myself for my own sake. In other words, I'm living just for me. That's selfishness. That, he says, is the first stage of love. Most people who have not experienced conversion, that's where they're at. Or maybe people who did know conversion fell back into that. Okay? That's what you got to avoid. That's, you know, the lack of the state of grace. Okay? And that's where we are before conversion. Many times. I'm caught up with myself. And, uh, and, you know, it takes a while to completely overcome that. Remember when, when Jesus asked the apostles those two questions, he said, who do the people say I am? And he got some nice answers, didn't he? John the Baptist, because John had already been put to death and people were confusing him. They didn't have, you know, CNN back then with live coverage. Well, this is John and that's Jesus. Little people didn't hear about maybe John had died. But they, or if they did, they, you know, figured, well, Jesus must be John the Baptist here. Okay. Um, Others said maybe Elijah, the prophet, who's coming at the end. Or maybe Jeremiah. Jeremiah, probably because when a rabbi went around, he always took his wife. Jeremiah was told by God he couldn't get married. He didn't like that, but he was told by God he couldn't get married. Okay? He didn't have a wife. So Jesus was so unusual going around, he didn't have a wife. So they said, maybe he's Jeremiah. Come back to life here. Then Jesus said to them, and who do you say I am? And you remember, Simon, son of John, answered, you are the Christ, the anointed one that we're waiting for, the son of the living God. And what did Jesus say to him? Blessed are you, Simon, son of John. He said, no mere flesh and blood revealed that to you, but my heavenly father. See, it was an act of faith in Jesus. And to have faith it must come from God. My heavenly father revealed that to you. And so I say to you, he gave him a new name, remember? I say to you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In other words, you're declaring me to be the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You know it was revealed to you who I am. And remember, he made up a name. See, there was no name Peter. If you take the Greek word for rock, Petra, now, the A makes it a feminine. So what did Jesus do? He dropped the A, put O-S, Petros. He made up a name. Okay, Rock. Bishop Sheen called him, said he, Jesus called him Rocky. Hmm? And, he, and he was a little bit rocky, wasn't he? Huh? You know? And that's why later on, when he denied Jesus three times, he denied he was his disciple. And you remember that little conversation after the resurrection? Jesus called him, not Peter, he called him by his old name, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he had, to, he had to answer it three times. Remember the third time, he was very upset. He said, Lord, you know everything, you know I love you. Only then did he call him Peter again, because by saying three times he loved Jesus, he was declaring he was Jesus' disciple. See, he believed again. He was weak, well, human nature, he, he was the head it was the head honcho, and he fell. So how about us? So Peter was, was weak there, okay? But he had, when Jesus said, when he tried to talk Jesus out of, the, out of his passion, remember, he said, get behind me, Satan. You think the thoughts of men and not of God. 
See, that was still carnal thinking. He loved Jesus. He was following Jesus, but he hadn't changed his heart yet. He had a long way to go. All the apostles had to grow a long way. They didn't change until Pentecost. Okay? The second, so the first level of love is this carnal love. I love myself for my own sake. But St. Bernard said, if you begin to move toward God, you come to what is called mercenary love. Now, a mercenary is a soldier who fights not to defend their country out of patriotism. They fight for money. What's in it for me? Okay? So mercenary love, St. Bernard said, is described this way. I love God, but for my sake. Why? I need him. How many people go to God when they need him? They forget about him a lot of other times, but when they need him, they go to him. I always use the example of 9-11 up in New York. After that happened, the churches were packed for weeks. The people had, did they have to tell the people where the churches were? No, they knew where the churches were. But they had no need to go there. Now they were afraid, so they had a need. See? And that's mercenary love. And, but if you love God at that level, I love God for my sake, for what I need, what I need is going to provide for me, he's going to take care of me and all that. You'll be very inconsistent in the way you love him. So I don't have to go to church this Sunday, and that's all right, that's okay. You know, or I don't have to keep all the commandments, or, you know, I, I can, you know, look at some material. It may be very bad for me, but it's, it's okay. It's, you become inconsistent. Why? Because you don't love him for his sake. That's the third level. And he called that filial love, the love of a son or daughter. If you, and St. John says, this is what we are now. We are children of God. And so what is filial love? St. Bernard said, I love God for his sake. In other words, I love him because of who he is. He's all good. He's worthy of all my love. See, that fear of the Lord that I told you about? Mm -hmm. And that's important because if you're going to grow in virtue and you want to be consistent and you want to be a true disciple of Jesus, your love has to reach that level where I have to love him for his sake. Not just for what he's going to provide for me. You know, Jesus the deli. He's not, the, you know, he's not just there to provide for all my needs. I have to love him. I have to serve him. I, have, I want to be his true disciple. See? That's filial love. St. Bernard said that's the love that should characterize us on earth. There's one more level of love, he said, but only very few saints ever had it on earth, but it will be the love we have for God in heaven. And that he called it spousal love. He said, I, and he described it this way, I love myself only for the sake of God. In other words, I started off in the beginning loving myself for my own sake, I reach this complete self-forgetfulness. I love God for his sake. Uh, I love myself only for God's sake because he still loves me, okay? So that's very, very important. So love will grow, and it's very important. You'll see signs of this as we go through the mansions, okay? The second thing I wanted to talk about is prayer, okay? In the first three mansions, prayer is what we call ordinary or it's active, we, we do most of the work, okay? The best way to describe prayer in the first three mansions is the way they describe prayer in the Eastern Church. They speak about the prayer of the lips, the prayer of the mind, and the prayer of the heart, okay? That's how prayer develops. We start off with the prayer of the lips. What, what's that mean? That's the formal prayers we recite, see? 
For example, little children need to be taught their prayers. God himself in the Old Testament, he inspired 50 prayers, 150 prayers, for the people so that they would know how to talk to him. And what do we call them? The Psalms. Okay, so we need to have words to speak to God. When we're little children, and those in the first mansions are like little children, they need to know how to talk to God. So they recite their prayers. And it's very important to teach your children, your grandchildren, you know, their prayers so they know what to say. See, it just doesn't, you know, you should be able to talk to God in your own way. They don't know how to do that. But if they know, for example, the Our Father, the Hail Mary, the Glory Be, you know where most Catholics learn their prayers? Saying the rosary. Years ago, it was much more common, you know, family rosary and so on. Father Peyton up there in San Francisco, he had that big, remember that big conference? I was at a conference about four years ago to commemorate the 50th anniversary. He had a half a million people in San Francisco. Imagine that, huh? Saying the rosary. So, uh, but it's through the rosary that most Catholics learn to pray. You know, we say the formal prayers, the Our Father, Hail Mary, Glory Be, the Apostles' Creed, even that little decade prayer that Our Lady taught us at Fatima. Oh, my Jesus, forgive us our sins. Save us from the fires of hell. Lead all souls to heaven, especially those most in need of thy mercy. He taught that to the, she taught that to the children right after they had seen that vision of hell, remember? Okay, that was on July 13th. Um, so the prayer of the lips, okay? Then you move from there, like around the second mansion, you begin to want to reflect more. So the prayer of the mind, meditation. Meditation means simply to reflect, okay? And you begin to meditate. You begin to meditate on the words you're saying. You begin to meditate and reflect on the person you're talking to, to God, to the Blessed Mother, to the saints, okay? And you're beginning to also reflect on who you are. St. Francis, one time the whole night he spent in prayer, he said, Lord, who are you? Lord, who am I? Because it's God who will teach us who we are. And self-knowledge is very important. We'll see in the first mansion, St. Teresa talks about that. To know who we are before God. So we need to begin to reflect. When you say the, the rosary and you meditate on the mysteries, that's what you're doing. You're reflecting on them. Okay, so the prayer of the lips you move then to the prayer of the mind. That doesn't mean you stop the prayer of the lips. You'll be using formal prayers all the rest of your life. But meditating becomes more common. And then finally, it gets to the, what we call the prayer of the heart. We call that affective prayer. The prayer that comes spontaneously from my heart to speak to the Lord. He loves us when we do speak to him that way. Um, and uh, it's very, very spontaneous. Um, now, all three of these stages of prayer, the prayer of the lips, prayer of the mind, prayer of the heart, are ordinary stages of prayer, and almost every kind of organized religion has those stages of prayer, because they're natural. Beyond that, you get into the fourth mansion, and you begin to be aware of the Holy Spirit. That's no longer natural, that's supernatural, okay? It's the beginning of contemplative prayer because you are aware of the Holy Spirit inspiring you, okay, and leading you. We'll talk about that as we go through. Let's get into this. Uh, why did St. Teresa write this book? Well, I told you that her, her spiritual director told her, he'd seen that she had advanced much in prayer and virtue, so he wanted her to write this. 
So she prayed for a way to express this, okay? And um, it was on the, the feast of the, um, uh, the Holy Trinity on, uh, she, where she prayed to God. And what she received as an answer to her prayers was she saw a soul in the state of grace. And this is what she saw. This is the way she basically described it. Did you ever cut an onion in half and you have all those what we call concentric circles, okay, those different layers? She saw like seven layers of light leading to the center where the light was most brilliant. And she said that's where the king was, in the center of the soul, living there, the soul in the state of grace. And, um, and so she, she was inspired to write this work according to seven stages through which we go to come to Christ who is at the center of the heart, okay? And, um, and so she, she had, it was very difficult for her because she used to get headaches. She was suffering a lot from headaches. Uh, she was afraid that, remember, the reform was going to be suppressed. Uh, people were writing things against her and everything. And one of her works was already at the, the uh, it was before the Inquisition. They were studying it. So she had to write almost like, I know somebody who did this. She didn't put herself there, see. I knew somebody who went through this and so on. So she began to write about that. And, uh, and so she said, as we journey closer to God, we come closer to that light where Christ dwells in the soul as we advance along the journey of prayer, okay? And, um, and so she began to write along those ways. She also saw a soul that lost the state of grace. She said it was filled with darkness. The light, Christ, God was still there, but there was no light coming from that soul. And so that soul was in pitch darkness, see, and was in danger of being lost, okay? So she began to describe a soul in the first mansion. Let me give you a brief description of what it's like. One priest described it this way. He says, these are people who struggle, uh, you know, but not very strongly, not very ardently. Remember when she herself said that she had a hard time, you know, giving up those attachments to the, to the, the people, the, the parlor and everything else, you know, she said she, she, she tried, she said, I was raised up and then I fell back down, you know, again, because she was not being very consistent with that, okay? And so he says that souls in this first stage are kind of that way. They struggle, but only weakly. They're not fully determined, even against mortal sin, and so they will fall back in that. By the way, she said, in order to enter the castle, you have to make a decision. She said, even though this dwelling of God is within you, you have to make a decision to enter the journey of prayer. And, you know, in Spain, they have a lot of castles. And uh, if you go to Avila, it's one of the most perfectly preserved walled cities, great big, huge wall around the city, and uh, a lot of castles there in Spain. And so she took the image of a castle and said, this is a castle with seven sets of dwelling places. See, when we use the word mansion, it's a little bit could be a little bit misleading because each mansion would be separate. A great big, huge, beautiful building is a mansion, okay? But for her, it was one castle with all of these rooms interconnected so that you journeyed from one to the other until you got to the center, okay? So that was very, very important. And um, 
She said, you have to make up your mind to do this. Now, in order to enter the castle, remember the old movies, uh, anything about the Middle Ages, somebody coming in the castle, they had the moat. Remember the moat around the castle? And it was filled with all kinds of horrible creatures, snakes and um, scorpions and all of that. He didn't want to fall in the, in the moat, that's for sure. So how do you get in the castle? Well, the bridge has to come down, right, over the moat. And as you're going in, what happens? She says, a lot of reptiles follow you, see, because that, it's open, and they rush right in with you. What does she mean by that? And so, you know, people reading that, they're going to wonder, what in the world are these reptiles? It's your attachment to sin. It's your sinful habits, see. Um, it, it's the, 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 the things that keep you from God, from loving God, see. They follow you. You don't just, even if you have a conversion, you don't just, you know, jettison all, get rid of all those kind of things all at once, unless you have an amazing conversion. Now, there are people who had that. That woman in the gospel who uh, wept over the feet of Jesus. Remember that? Huh? And the Pharisee judging Jesus. If he knew what kind of woman this was, he wouldn't allow her to touch him like that. Hmm? Did you ever stop to think, how did he know what kind of woman that was? Hmm? He saw her on business, hmm? and she did not make rosaries. Hmm? She was a prostitute. Hmm? And what did Jesus say? He said, when I came in your house, you offered me no, no water to bathe my feet. She bathed my feet with her tears. You did not anoint my head. She anointed my feet with perfume. She said, you gave me no kiss of greeting she has not ceased to kiss my feet. Her sins, many though they are, are forgiven her because she has loved much. Now, it's possible for a person who is a great sinner to become a very great saint because they know what evil is and they know what giving evil up is and how much they must love. See, going from inauthentic love to authentic love. She went on a 747 right through these mansions, okay? Most people are on ro roller skates, <laughs> okay? You know, they're not gonna go so fast, you know? They take their time, they dilly-dally. And because of those reptiles, see, they get bit and they fall back out of the castle. So they have to repent, go to confession, okay? Now, what is a person like in that first mansion? Well, uh, this priest described it this way. They do go to confession if, after they fall into mortal sin. They frequently place themselves into occasions of sin. You know, people, places, things that will lead them into sin. They still have sinful attachments and habits. See? They make no effort to avoid venial sin. They're not concerned about that. See? Um, they consider that inconsequential venial sin, not important. Their practices of piety may be try to do some of the things asked for by the church. They may go to, to Mass once in a while on Sunday. Um, you know, once in a while they'll say some prayers, maybe a couple of times a month. Hmm? That's all they pray, you know. They hardly ever think about the state of their soul until something, you know, gets to them, okay? But they begin to grow, all right? Let's see, I'm, I'm kind of... I wanted to read some stuff from St. Teresa here. Um, she said she starts off by talking about the beauty and the dignity of the soul in the state of grace. 
You know, when God created in the fifth day, everything he had created, which did not include man and woman, that was the sixth day. He said, what I have made, everything I made is good. When he made man and woman on the sixth day, he said, everything I have made is very good. And so there is a dignity and a beauty to us as human beings, but especially to the soul. Huh? And you can imagine the soul is made in the image and likeness of God. In the image of God because we have intelligence, which means we can love God. See, we can know him and love him because we have intelligence and free will. And this is very, very important, okay? So we can become Jesus' disciples, his friends, his children, all right? Um, and uh, we can know him and love him as he knows and loves us. And that's what makes us different from all the other creatures, you know, which are, they love God by just being who they are. They honor God that way. But they do not have that ability to know him and love him as you and I do, okay? So we're made in his image and likeness, okay? Uh, and imagine when God is dwelling in the soul, how beautiful that soul must be in the sight of God. You know, the little flower, she had a, a wonderful expression. She said, Jesus does not leave paradise, the beauty of paradise, to come down and simply remain in the tabernacle. He's looking for another paradise in you and in me. Because when he sees our soul in the state of grace, he sees his own reflection. We are beautiful before God. I like to use the example of when a woman gives birth to a child, and, you know, all the family, they go to the hospital, and they go to the, what is it, the, the, um, where the, all the, the baby's cribs are, and you see the little babies there, right? And what happens when the family gets there? Don't they dissect the child? Oh, he has his mother's eyes, his father's nose, and all of that, you know? They see, and when the parents see that child, they see themselves in that child. And that becomes a beautiful foundation of love. How much more Jesus loves us when we are in the state of grace. So there is a great beauty to the soul. Unfortunately, St. Teresa says, it's like a beautiful diamond, but it's kept in a, a wooden case, but people, which is the body. She says people spend more time on the case than on the diamond. So in other words, we care about the things in the world that we can't take with us, you know. So she said it's important that, you know, we give first priority to, um, to the soul. And what are the things that hold us back, which cause us not to be able to go to God more quickly? Mortal sin, okay? Remember those reptiles following, sinful habits and occasions of sin, okay? Why, why do people do that? Well, they're still attracted by worldly pleasures and honors and ambitions, she said, okay? And these are those reptiles. She describes people in this mansion as first people who uh, want to avoid offending God. Many of them think about their souls every now and then. Many perform some good works, you know. Uh, many pray a few times a month, but they're still absorbed in worldly matters and pleasures. Puffed up, she said, with worldly honors and ambitions. So if we want to advance to God, we have to be ready to make a, you know, a, a choice. We can't serve two masters. We can't serve God and the world at the same time. St. Teresa gives this advice. If you want to make progress, try to put aside all unnecessary affairs and business as far as your state in life permits it, okay? 
So in other words, put priorities in your life. Is God numero uno? Is he the number one priority of your life? That's what we should be aiming for, okay? Because that will bring us very close to Jesus. See, she's laying down the condition for a serious prayer life. St. Francis de Sales used this example. He said, if you tied down an eagle with a big heavy ball and chain, the eagle still can't fly. Okay, can't fly. Um, that would represent serious sins in a person's life. But he said, even if you tie the eagle down with a cord that's just too strong for the eagle to break, still can't fly. So even sometimes small things keep us from loving God more and more. Okay, so we deepen our conversion. And she said, to do this, we need humility and self-knowledge. Humility makes us look at Christ and to realize everything we have, everything we are, ultimately comes from him. The only thing we have that is our own are our sins. Everything else God has given us. And so St. Teresa herself was greatly influenced by the humility of Jesus' suffering. Okay? And, um, and so she, she, she saw what he suffered for our sake, and she wanted to love him. She said, so humility is very important. St. Augustine said, the first most important virtue in the spiritual life is humility. The second most important is humility. And the third most important is humility. Huh? You get the point? Okay. And what is important to lead us to that humility is self-knowledge, which means we begin to see ourselves as God sees us. Many people judge themselves by if they're doing better than the people around them. If they have more possessions, a better job, better friends, you know, that, that's, that's who I am. Know who you are and who I am, St. Francis said, is who I am before God. It's what God sees me to be, that's what I am, nothing more, nothing less. All right? So to come to that kind of knowledge is very important. And that's why, remember, I told you that prayer St. Francis had, Lord, Lord, who are you? And Lord, who am I? And that's very, very important to see ourselves, you know. I am what I am in the sight of God, St. Francis said. Okay. So we have to be, be she stressed scripture as a source of, of prayer and reflection. And um, so I think I'd better stop here so we have some time for confessions, all right, before the Mass. But I will pick up on the second mansion, uh, begin from there in our talk this afternoon. We'll get through these mansions then.